Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Hallwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're breaking out the Ouija boards and asking the spirits about the genre of occult horror. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? On the 14th of September, Concrete Cow's back! Yeah, a one-day convention on our doorstep in Milton Keynes and Wolverton. So if you are in the UK, if you're in the vicinity of Milton Keynes, or even if you're not, you're all very welcome. Hope to see you there. Yes, we'll put a link in the show notes. It'd be nice to see some of you there. And now on to our main topic, the genre of occult horror. Well, what do we mean by occult horror? It's basically sort of related to the stuff we've been talking about, but also very different. It's the more sensationalised form. It's the more lurid form. And this is dark rituals, people in in hooded robes performing blood rites. It's curses and hexes. It's summoning up demons. Not just demons as manifestations of your id, but actual physical, horned, flesh-and-blood things. As epitomised... By Hammer Horror. I, I was just thinking of lots of boobies <laughs> and blood of, a, uh, of Hammer. Yeah. Yeah. Are breasts an essential part of a cult horror for you, Matt? Only in Hammer. I mean, it's interesting that you raise Hammer because you could describe a cult horror in all sorts of different ways. I mean, in its broadest form, it could include things like werewolves and vampires and ghosts because, I mean, these are all associated with the occult and we'll probably touch on some of those in passing. But really, in terms of horror... They're sort of their own thing as well. Yeah, they kind of associate them more with monster movies than uh, than the occult. I mean, the thing is, with all these horror tropes, they all fit a bit into some aspect of the occult. But how do we define an occult horror as opposed to folk horror, whatever it yeah. might be? Some of the topics we talked about before, for example, we did folk horror. Well, how does how is that not? occult horror well i think the answer is to some extent it is but there's perhaps a a, a fairly nice difference between them in that folk horror is well i mean it's folky it's earthy it's it's primal it's ancient something that is part of the land and landscape whereas i i think of occult horror as being more perhaps intellectual, more associated with the ideas of the Western occult tradition or of Satanism. Yeah, something a bit more, I don't know, rarefied. Yeah, and summoning up dark forces and, you know, occult books and paraphernalia and pentagrams and all that stuff, surely. Lots of rituals. Yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, there's also an awful lot of overlap between this and what we might call religious horror. We talked about Satanism as being part of this, and Satanism is perhaps, you know, very much at the core of things like Rosemary's Baby and tangentially related to stuff like uh, the Exorcist and very much to the Omen. But at the same time, I don't necessarily think of those as being particularly occult horror works because they're associated really with Christianity, with Christian beliefs and, you know, with religious beliefs in general and i think there's a a huge swathe of horror from across the world that draws upon religious beliefs in similar ways and it's very easy i think to mix the two up together and they're certainly kissing cousins but here we're going to leave all that religious stuff to one side and just focus on the black magic and again, we're going to focus up very much on Western ideas of black magic. And well, I think it's probably safe to say very British ideas of black magic. Certainly, you know, in terms of the kinds of writers we're talking about, this is very much a, a British tradition. Now, listeners from our previous episodes will be familiar with a certain group here, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. These guys work pretty snugly into this little niche, don't they? Yeah, they do. I They were, you know, obviously a magical order around between the late 19th and early 20th century and really sort of shaped the foundations of uh, ritual magic and, and, you know, British and probably, you know, Western occultism for the, you know, the following century. But there were also a lot of writers involved, and perhaps, understandably, a lot of the magical ideas that they drew upon then bled into the fiction. Uh, These writers include Bram Stoker, Arthur Macken, A.E. Waite, Algernon Blackwood, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Sax Roma, 
Dion Fortune, E. Nesbitt, W.B. Yeats and Alistair Crowley. There are some interesting names there, people you might not normally associate with weird fiction. For example, E. Nesbitt, uh, Edith Nesbitt, was associated, I think, more with children's fiction than anything else. But she also wrote one of the creepiest horror stories I've ever read, uh, which is called Man's Eyes and Marble. And she published a number of collections of, of ghost stories. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, obviously best known for the Sherlock Holmes story, again did you know, sort of write the occasional bit of weird stuff. And Alistair Crowley, we think of as being yeah, an occultist, but not necessarily a fiction writer, but he did write some weird fiction. Uh, he wrote a lot of stories about an occult detective called Simon If, two collections of short stories and a novel called The Moonchild, uh, which is absolutely steeped in occult ideas. Remember, Doyle was quite um, an advocate for, almost playing, or devil's advocate for the supernatural, like photos of fairies and so on. Mm. Be interested in debunking them or looking for, I think more accurately, looking for evidence that there was ever a real one out there. Oh, yeah, he was, I mean, I'm probably going to get details of this wrong, but I I seem to remember that he was a very keen spiritualist, that he attended seances, that he very much believed in life after death. And then, yeah, the example you're talking about there was the Cottingsley fairies. Mm -hmm. So these two girls who claimed that they'd encountered fairies at the bottom of their garden or in the woodland near their house and provided photographic evidence of the two of them consorting with these fairies. And I mean, to modernise, they are very obviously fakes. You know, they're paper or cardboard cutouts of fairies and the two girls, they're posing with them as they're sitting on tree branches or, or flowers or whatever. But apparently, you know, in those early days, this was more than enough to provide proof that these fairies existed. Yeah. And, and Conan Doyle was an advocate that these fairies were real. And Montague Summers, a, uh, a clergyman and writer working in the early 20th century. He believed in the occult and saw it as something wholly evil. Uh, he wrote a number of non-fiction books about witchcraft, demonology, black magic, vampires and werewolves, all of which, apparently, he believed in. Yeah, he's an interesting character. Uh, he was, a friend might be an overstatement, but he and Crowley certainly knew each other and sort of came at this from opposite angles, that you know, he was a, a very religious man. Uh, he purported to be a clergyman, but there's some debate about whether he actually was. And he he did write these these learned treatises on you know vampires and werewolves and black magic and witchcraft at the same time was very interested in in horror fiction and ghost stories. And so he edited two very influential anthologies, uh, The the Grimoire and Other Supernatural Stories and The Supernatural Omnibus, which collected all these sort of tales of black magic and witchcraft and so on. And I think probably laid a lot of the groundwork for the explosion of interest in cult horror and occult fiction that we saw in the UK over the years that followed. This was primarily in the 1920s and 30s. I've got at least two of his books, and I've got the translation of the Malleus Maleficarum. Yes. And Witchcraft and Black Magic was a much, much, much thinner volume um, that I've got in paperback of his as well. Yeah, yeah, because he was actually the first person to translate the Malleus Maleficarum into English. Yeah, he's he's an interesting character. I mean, his his books on occult subjects are you know written very much from the point of view of you know this stuff is evil, this stuff is horrible. But at the same time, there's a really kind of prurient interest, and there's you know definite belief in there. And they, I mean, they're just absolutely batshit crazy. I mean, if you're looking for inspiration for horror games, his stuff is just great. And then we come to the king of the occult horror. Back in the 1980s, when I was a student, we would trawl the, the second-hand bookshops of Wakefield and Huddersfield and Leeds. Oh, I remember meeting somebody in a game shop, and they were like, that second-hand bookshop just up the road. Somebody found an Arkham House original Lovecraft book in there like a couple of weeks back. Whoa. And I was like, shit, this is in the 80s I'm talking. But yeah, so these things were around, so we were like, you know, looking for them. But, you know, you're looking for those... In the horror section, which is pretty much 50% authored by the king of occult horror himself. Who is it, Matt? Well, it's not Stephen King, as you might have thought with the name. No. But no, no. We're keeping it very British here. And it's Dennis Wheatley. But, oh boy. Yeah, um, in preparation for, uh, for the show, I thought, oh no, I've had him on the shelf for years. I want to try and actually finally read one of them. 
So I picked uh, Devil Rides Out, one of his uh, more well-known ones. Dates from, what, 34, 35? The Heron edition has a lovely foreword written, because we, we were still alive when they put them out, where he went over a bit about his history, his own personal history, his background. And God, that boy had one hell of a life. Oh, I mean, was that the bit where he talked about having uh, founded a secret society at school that ended up getting him expelled? Yeah, that was one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because he, he, he hated school pretty much, at least the kind of the authoritarian regime. Um, how he was, he followed in his family footsteps about uh, wine producing, um, then how he got hurt during. I think it was a mustard gas attack during the First World War. Yeah, because or, he 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 served as an officer in an artillery unit mm-hmm. in the First World War, I believe, and and served you know, actually on on the European mainland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he he was wounded out, and it left him physically weak in some respects afterwards he couldn't lift anything particularly heavy and then of course he, he went home he fell into writing as a way to basically pass the time um, to alleviate boredom he was involved in planning the d-day landings um, yeah, after yeah, well, that well so. he worked for british intelligence throughout the second world war mm-hmm. right to the extent where there is actually a stat block for him in the world war cthulhu the darkest hour core book mm-hmm. yeah deservedly so but you think fantastic life bloody awful writer <laughs> <laughs> well he was also he was also an eccentric man as well. I mean, in, oh, yeah. in, well, in terms of his political beliefs, he, he was something of a fascist, wasn't he? Oh, he, he held Mussolini up like a god. Yeah, and, and towards the end of his life, he proclaimed that, I mean, not just metaphorically, literally, that communism was satanic. <laughs> <laughs> that does not surprise me. I mean, but you in, say a bad writer, but like a populist writer oh, yeah. of the things that we might not read very often, but you know, they, they were page turners. Oh, yeah. He, that's that's one thing, admitted, I will say, uh, probably say how I can understand, having finished the book, why he was potentially so popular. That there's certain aspects of the stories which I think are more akin to what you'd find in like, action films mm. and so on today. Because The Devil Rides Out book has some massive sections where it is... Almost, this is straight out of an um, out an action adventure um, novel. I mean, it's probably worth pointing out that he didn't just write occult books; that he did write these action adventure thrillers. He wrote a lot of espionage books, and sometimes, yeah, the, sometimes he even mixed them all up. Like in, uh, they use dark forces. Yeah, that's the great. The, I think the last Gregory Celust book, um, he did historical fiction with Roger Brooke being a spy during Elizabethan England, mm. um, and then loads of standalone novels as well. He, he did large series as well as just individual books. Yeah. And of course, Devil Rides Out fits into the uh, the Derishlu cycle. That there was a whole load of other books that featured him and his um, him and his little crew, but not all of them involved cult thrillers. No, no. I mean, they they even within those cycles, he'd jump genres quite regularly. Mm. Yeah, like I say, the Celeste ones particularly, yeah. where they used Dark Forces, because the rest of them up until that point were just straight down the line spy thriller espionage. But in terms of you know the the sort of easy to read but you know facile prose, perhaps not great character development but page turning plots and so on, mm-hmm. it occurs to me he was pretty much the Dan Brown of his day, wasn't yep, he? He was, which is why I said there's a lot that you can do. Yeah. <laughs> teleport over. He hasn't aged very well as well in certain mm, phrases. Yeah. Uh, there were several. He ejaculated uh, oh, in the course I, of I mean, you, you, get, you, get the, you, you get ejaculations <laughs> like that all over 20th century literature. Um, yeah. I, uh, As oh. Stephen King said in his book on writing, just say, he said, she said. Don't use any of that other stuff. <laughs> Unless you're actually talking about him ejaculating. No, no, he wasn't. No, no okay. Oh, okay, no, I, I was reading some H.G. Wells recently, and they're, they're, you know, he, he ejaculated all over the page. <laughs> I, I, and uh, also, uh, Agatha Christie was, was mm. a prime ejaculation. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I did Christie for my uh, for my dissertation. Um, her and P.D. James. Yeah, yeah. Both, I think, both I think... better writers than Wheatley. So I've not read The Devil Rides Out, but I have read To the Devil a Daughter. Uh-huh. And I don't remember quite what the narrative was. It was kind of set abroad in some nice locations and obviously he meets this girl and there's some sort of intrigue with them. But there's nothing ostensibly occult, as I recall. And then about a third of the way through or halfway through, I can remember I'd looked up the quote, but it's just like at the end of a, a chapter, he just comes out with, it was clear to me now. This girl was part of a witch's coven. <laughs> I was like, where did that come from? There's been no hint of witchcraft at all up until this point. But he just like turns on a on a on a penny and is like, wow, okay. It's, it's like reading a Jack Chick tract, isn't it? Yeah. That is very similar to how Devil Rides Out starts. Is it? Oh right. It's, they go to they go to a house where their basically their friend hasn't turned up to this uh, usual get together um, reunion. That's it. They're wondering, well, our friend hasn't turned up for months. Let's go and find out where he is. What the hell are all these Satanists doing here? (laughs) (laughs) They're worse than ants. You you leave some sugar out, suddenly you've got Satanists everywhere. (laughs) But, oh, boy. Um, 
You're saying about that it suddenly comes up with that kind of declaration. Yeah. There, there are certain chapters in Devil Rides Out, particularly the way he outlines the whole esoteric doctrine, as he calls it, where they're incredibly long chapter length. It's just the Richelieu going, this is the occult. If this, <laughs> if this was in a scenario, I would have shot him by now. <laughs> two lines in and he'd be dead. So, I mean, is occult horror, to some degree, a misrepresentation of witchcraft in the occult? Yeah. But not only that, but put forward by people who are kind of promulgating a, a fear of, of that from a often from a Christian perspective. So yes. they're saying, oh, that Harry Potter, that's a cult. Don't be reading that because you're going to start <laughs> doing witchcraft and it's going to introduce you to the, you know, the dark side. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, there, there obviously are occult fiction books written by occultists. So we talked about, say, the, the Simon If stories by Alistair Crowley. And those aren't necessarily horror in the same way as, say, Dennis Wheatley is. I mean, Moonchild, yeah, is about sort of a battle between black and white magic. And I suppose to some extent you can almost see parallels there with Dennis Wheatley, except, you know, with white magicians taking on the role of, you know, good upstanding Christians in, in Wheatley. But it's still, you know, battle against dark forces. I think the vast majority of it does come out of Christianity, and I think it's very significant that both Montague Summers and uh, Dennis Wheatley, the two great figures who, of, of 20th century occult fiction, both believed in the occult and were vehemently against it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Wheatley mm. gave a, a very pointed note at the beginning of the novel uh, before Devil Rides Out, basically saying, yes, this stuff exists and is practised in modern-day England. Do not do it! Well, yeah... I've, now, it's really interesting to me that, as well as writing all his own stuff, Dennis Wheatley edited this line of 45 books for Sphere publications between 1974 and 1977, called the Dennis Wheatley Library of the Occult. This was a really eclectic mixture of stuff. There was a lot of fiction, but at the same time, there were actual occult texts written by people like Madame Blavatsky. I mean, for example, one of the books that was published was the first edition of uh, Real Magic by then Philip Bowen. Bonewitz, later Isaac Bonewitz, which is a book that has since become a, a role-playing book. Uh, it was republished by Steve Jackson as, I think, Authentic Thaumaturgy <laughs> back in the 1980s. <laughs> the background to this book is that Bonewitz was an academic, uh, well, I say was, I mean, he might still be alive, who did, I can't remember, it's either an MA or a doctoral thesis in magic as anthropology back in the late 60s, early 70s. The book is basically his thesis written up in a a popularised form, talking about the different anthropological roots of magic across the world, the commonalities, and what this means to a sort of practical global magical system. Wheatley published this as as part of his library of the occult and wrote a little introduction to it. He was talking about it in in relatively glowing terms, but he also was saying things like, you know, thank goodness in the modern day no one really has the time and resources to pursue these kinds of things anymore. But just in case you do, here's a copy of the book. (laughs) What? That's really weird. I can only imagine this kind of a money spinner. So he's quite a a well-recognised name. Uh, and some publisher comes to him and says, you know, can we do imprints of these old books with you, you know, with you writing a forward and mm. your name on the cover? Great. We'll pay yeah. you a bunch well, of money and we'll sell them to your fans. Well, and, and, and he wrote the introduction to each one as well, which was normally like one or two pages. So that's, sure. you know, money, or for, money for old rope. Yeah. yeah. Like saying in that, in that introduction to the Heron editions, he was saying that how his books have been kept in print by publishers because they were still successful even after, what, 30 years of them be, being out. Really? The, I mean, that's, they'd sold millions, which yeah. is probably why they ended up in so many uh, collections of used bookstores. Yeah, yeah. I think with Wheatley, as with Summers, that there is perhaps a, a disingenuous side to uh, what they did, in that they you know, wrote these essays and introductions and, and, you know, in Summers's case, books about how evil the occult was and how bad it was. But at the same time, they, they glamorised it, they popularised it, they made it uh, salacious, uh, to the extent where in the 1970s, I mean, there was a, a huge upsurge of interest in the occult, in the UK particularly, that I think was very much down to Wheatley. I don't think we can you know place it entirely at his feet, but I think he was a huge driving force in this. And, you know, at the time, you know, there were part works being put out by magazines that you could you know, buy to learn all about occult stuff and there was the growth in in new age practices and beliefs and and people rediscovering Alistair Crowley and all these, you know, the Golden Dawn and all these old forms of the occult. For someone who said that he was so 
against the occult and considered it to be evil, you know, Wheatley and, and to some extent Summers were both very willing to popularise it to make money. So when would you say that was sort of early 70s? Yeah, early to mid 70s, yeah. I mean, I think the sheet metal workers of Birmingham got something to do with that. <laughs> Black, Black Sabbath? Sabbath, yeah. I mean, yeah. all the trappings of uh, heavy metal, largely, you know, occult stuff. Yeah. Right? Well, the name um, kind of implies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so you, you know where Black Sabbath took their name from? Probably from the A Sabbath. <laughs> no, no, they took it from the Mario Bava film of the same name. Ah. But I mean, they, they did like all that occult trappings. Same, same with Alice Cooper, right? He's not into all that stuff, but he used all the no. trappings because it was you know, theatrically fun. Yeah, I mean, Alice Cooper's actually a, a minister's son and a devout Christian. Yeah. He's uh, a presenter on Planet Rock these days. Yes. It's hard to pin down a root cause to any of these things, but there was it was certainly a strong current then of the occult in popular literature and music and, and films, yeah. Hammer Horror and so on. And, and, and television. I mean, you know, loads yeah. of stuff on TV in the 70s. Yeah. Do you think that was a golden age of kind of occult horror? I think so, yeah. I mean, very much, I'd say, in parallel or in conjunction with the, the folk horror revival, mm. that it was an interest in the mystical, in the otherworldly. Again, the difference between folk horror and occult horror there is that, you know, folk horror was much more about, you know, this is our land, this is where we come from, this is where our beliefs come from. The occult horror stuff was much more tabloid headlines of, you know, suburban Satanists performing black masses in their cellars and stuff like that. Something we sort of touched upon in passing there, and, you know, just wanted your opinions. Why is it, do we think, that, you know, most stories about the occult, particularly during the 20th century, why most of them are horror stories? I mean, is this something that is inherently horrifying? or uh... I think it works better than a cult romance. <laughs> oh, I, I, I think that's just because people haven't written enough of that. My point exactly. I think it works better than a cult romance. <laughs> I, I, th- I just think it's a natural fit. But why? Uh, there's a certain mystique. There's a certain amount of the unknown. I think that plays perfectly into horror. It's all about that almost going to the Lovecraft uh, term fear of the unknown. Yeah. And also because it's being put forward as we said, I think, by Christians as something to drive people away from the occult because they see that as the works of the devil, thus scary, thus demons, and drive them towards being good Christians. I think that's probably exactly it. That, you know, there certainly is occult fiction that has been written by occultists which is perhaps more neutral and and less aimed at at shock. But the the tropes we remember are the ones that come out of people like Dennis Wheatley and, and out of Hammer Horror films and so on because they're just more exciting. Yeah. Also, I don't think there are enough people working out there in the veins of Tim Powers or Artiro Perez, uh, who wrote The uh, Demar Club, that a cult thriller hasn't really taken off mm-hmm. into wider popularity yet. Yeah, I, actually, that's a good point. I didn't think to mention Tim Powers here, but he, I mean, he's a good example of mm. someone who uses occult tropes in a perhaps a more neutral way. And his stuff Well, certainly is- not a horror way, right? Well, I mean, there there are certainly horrific elements, but you get books like Declare, uh, for example, which is an espionage thriller set in the Cold War. You know, uses a lot of Judeo-Christian occult tropes. Mm. Yeah, it shares a lot of DNA, perhaps, with you know some classic you know, occult horror, but at the same time, yeah, it, it doesn't have that tabloid sensibility to it. What are the more common tropes of what we would consider to be occult horror, and how might they play into Call of Cthulhu? Lots of upside-down crosses, pentagrams, goats, the devil, Satan! So, all the, all the best things in life, then. Exactly. Yeah, I think you nailed it, Matt. It's like, what do I look for in a, an occult horror film? It is those things, really. That They tend to be clichés, I would say. Yeah. Well, let's hit the first one. Satanism. Satanism. Break out your goats. <laughs> Black Philip again, goat, the star of the get show. pentagram. Upside down crosses. <laughs> well, we touched the Virgin. A, but we did touch upon in our episodes on the actual occult that Satanists don't really tend to believe in Satan. They but, seem pretty lame ass Satanists to me. Yeah, <laughs> but, but Satanists and occult horror, oh, they're the real deal. They, they're, they're the proper they're, Satanists. They're, they're more real as Satanists and Satanists are. Because <laughs> yeah, they, I think they, they are, actually. Exactly, because they they're worship fucking the fucking devil. Satan. Yeah. 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 You've got to do what it says on the can. If you call yourself a Satanist and you don't worship the Satan, 
<laughs> I mean, what are you doing? You're misrepresenting yourself. As far Stop. as I'm concerned, I'm sorry. So, Blatant so, false advertising. Yeah. So Satan is very disappointed in you. He bloody will be. <laughs> With the idea of Satanism, what is it that, you know, in occult horror, that antagonists, what is it they hope to get out of the worship of Satan? I think there's a great line, oddly enough, coming from Milton. It is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Power. Mm. That that is that worldly is the key. power, right? Yeah, yeah. or Earthly any power, power they can get. Where if they can't get uh, the creme de la creme, get the best you can get. Otherwise, say so rain in hell. So we got that classic Faustian pact. Faust and with other similar deals. I mean, these are people who are trading their immortal souls for earthly power, knowledge, long-term suffering for short-term gain. So, yeah, there's obviously a very strong moral lesson there anyway. But in Call of Cthulhu terms, where, you know, we're looking at a materialistic universe and there isn't necessarily an immortal soul to be bargained with, what is sort of the equivalent of a Faustian pact there? Signing the Book of Azathoth. That's as close to you get in the likes of Dreams of the Witch House. Yeah, do you think that actually does? Uh, the way I read it, and also from having listened to the um, Dreams of the Witch House rock opera, um, <laughs> the way they present it, Yes. Um, so, that, so, sorry, it's just, I, I, I love the idea that is the ultimate moral authority on what deals with the devil do. <laughs> Honestly, there's some fantastic <laughs> lyrics in there. It's a musical, it's the work yeah. of the devil, right? Yeah. Yeah. Carry on. Well, yeah, musical in general. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, there's the end song is all about how he's, um, Gilman has found himself transported into space and now haunts the night as this violet light, that he's not passed over um, into any afterlife. And there's, there's some, I think actually going back to the likes of um, Kenneth Grant, who we've mentioned before, believe that the great abyss that Nodens presides over is almost a realm for the human subconscious, where, in inverted commas, the soul or the consciousness of humanity would return before they get reincarnated. But instead, Gilman is just this light flitting around the universe with no rest or no, no resolution to his existence afterwards. And that if by signing the Book of Azathoth you've pledged yourself to him, that maybe that light is going to eventually one day end up in the court dancing in front of Azathoth, keeping him placated for the rest of time. Mm. Like a 70s mm. disco. Exactly, yeah. What, watch the pretty <laughs> lights out of God, so, don't wake so, up. So basically you end up as one of the facets on Azathoth's mirror ball. Yeah. I mean, like I can think of no finer way to spend eternity. Yeah. Looking at Matt's face, he's ready to sign up for that right now. <laughs> Matt's face, when I said the words disco ball, yeah. like, it's not the reaction I'd have expected. I've got three CDs worth of MP3s in my car about disco music. <laughs> You're looking forward to that ride home, Scott? <laughs> I'll walk. <laughs> I, actually, no, I, I've, got, I've got loads of disco LPs on vinyl at home. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You tell us you listen to all that dark music, but really. Yeah, no, and no, I, I, I do have a soft spot for disco. But obviously the other part of, of Satanism that is really important is this idea of blasphemy. Satanism... You know, even in its real-world form, is a rejection of conventional morality. And in fiction, it's much more a convention of, of religious, of Christian morality. We see Lovecraft use the word blasphemous an awful lot, but in his world, it doesn't necessarily seem to have the same meaning. I mean, what is blasphemy? No, I think in, in Lovecraft, blasphemy is kind of an evocative word that means something to us as mortals. But in the mythos, it doesn't really have that much meaning, does it? Because you can't offend the Christian god because there isn't one. Isn't that itself almost, again, using the word blasphemous, to say there is no God. Uh, your belief system is complete fallacy. It's faith. It's a delusion. It's delusional. Mm. There is there is nothing there. This is the cold, harsh truth of the universe, and it's rubbing it in your face. Well, except if you start off with the precept that there is that there is no God in the mythos world, that this is the cold, harsh universe, and there is no meaning in it, then that revelation isn't within its own belief system blasphemous it's only viewed as being blasphemous from outside i mean mm. lovecraft refers to it as blasphemous but lovecraft wasn't a christian so i'd say there's something deeper to that the idea that uh, you know the mythos is an affront to not religious decency but you know, not even to morality but to the human perceptions of the universe that there is something so transgressive about what it teaches us that it it strikes the same notes as satanic blasphemy would to a christian pursuing immortality or longevity well i'm gonna try it or die trying <laughs> 
Yeah, again, this is a very common trope in occult horror, and and also in occultism in general, this idea of of trying to bargain for longer life or eternal life, trying to avoid death. I mean, Lovecraft himself obviously did that in the case of Charles Dexter Ward and Mm. the thing on the doorstep. You know, these are both magicians in pursuit of immortality through very different means. Is this something that we've ever kind of explored in our uh, in our own? I think we certainly or? had like the the photograph of someone on the wall, and you know, with a, a date of eighty years ago, and then yes. the guy walks in looking just the same. You know, you get these immortals that maybe it's their father or something, or maybe it's them, and that's a you know mm-hmm. perennial little uh, question. Yeah, I've, I've used it a few times. I certainly won't hold that back. I think it's a fantastic driving force because, to be honest. Some people say, oh, I'm not afraid of death. I think at core there's got to be some kind of fear there for a lot of people, the Hmm. vast majority. So who wouldn't want to try and live forever? Think of it in terms of occult horror and think of it in terms of black magic. I mean, it's normally presented in terms of something that a black magician, something an evil person would do. But is it an inherently evil thing? Or when it comes to making it scary in Call of Cthulhu or occult horror in general, do we rely on the, the trappings or the cost of it making it scary? Well, the method of which you were trying to attain it is the whether it's good or bad. Yeah, it's always, it's always by evil methods, right? It's never a benevolent thing to be doing, because also it's a selfish act. Then if you were performing these acts on behalf of someone else, say if you had a loved one who was terminally ill, and you were performing these acts of black magic in order to sustain their life, w- would that be inherently evil? It kind of suggests to me that you would also be an immortal trying to you know, keep your partner alive, perhaps, as we see with vampire mm. stories. Yeah. Vampires kind of epitomise this, don't they, of, of immortality, you know, evildoers becoming immortal. I don't know, doing it on behalf of someone else? No, maybe that's a less evil act, but it, it kind of opens up the hole in the story for you making some sort of pact with dark mm. powers to, to help someone else. So again, it, almost the default route there is that you're connecting with dark powers. Because if you're coming from a Christian ethos, which so many of these stories seem to... You know, you die and you go to heaven. Well, so why would you want to deny that? Unless mm. you're a bad dude. And I think the other way in which this can all be made horrific is if it doesn't quite work right or if there, you know, there, there are complications that, mm. you know, you do live forever, but you still age or... Or the yeah. end of the damnation game. Oh, God, <laughs> yes, yes. Perhaps one of the more horrifying parts of, of immortality of that, that bargain is the fact that you do become ossified. Even if your body stays young and healthy. Paul, I don't, I don't know if you feel this as you get older. That, what are you saying? That, that, yeah, that you, you can feel how, as you get older, your brain is very much not as it was when you were younger. You get locked more into patterns, you get locked more into beliefs, you get locked more into habits. Immortality would make that absolutely fucking horrifying, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, there is something creepy about living beyond human years. Because as we get old like you say people tend to deteriorate and even though you're you're staying young kind of an out of place Mm. feeling and a big part of you know staying young that we see in in black magic is this idea yeah like the countess bathory myth of blood sacrifice of bathing in the blood of virgins of gaining life at the expense of other people which leads us on nicely to the whole idea of sacrifice let's reference the dunwich horror the movie (laughs) oh yeah this is possibly the most cliched trope out of the whole bunch and it's the one that you know perhaps is the easiest to use in a lazy way call of cthulhu you know robed figures standing around an altar virgin sacrifice daggers at the ready stab 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 blood power i think i have been tempted to put this in in games but it's like well what actually in the call of cthulhu mythos what would a human sacrifice actually achieve? Why would mm. that achieve anything? I guess you can argue that in the game you've got magic points and by you know stabbing the, the enchanted dagger in, you're drawing out magic points or something to fuel a spell, perhaps. But just the release of... Well, it's not the release of a human soul, is it? Because we don't really have human souls. Mm. Although, think of the Whipperills in Dunwich Horror. There's an argument there is. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, that illustrates the lack of consistency across the Cthulhu mythos, doesn't it, as mm-hmm. well? So, so basically, in Call of Cthulhu, if you, if you conduct a human sacrifice, you're doing it to feed the birds. Yeah. Again, we're back to Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> 
it does seem like when we have those human sacrifices in, as much or more than anything else I can think of in Call of Cthulhu, that seems to be rooted in this kind of occult horror genre. Because many of the things in Call of Cthulhu don't really mesh with occult horror for me. Really? I, I think we'll come to that as part of our wrap-up discussion. I see Call of Cthulhu as you know, embodying so many tropes of occult horror. How could you actually make sacrifice an interesting or, or inventive thing in a game? I mean, let, I mean, let's start off with the, you know, the classic trope of human sacrifice. I mean, what, what, what would make that interesting in a game? I think it needs to be a, either a player character or someone who's close to a player character, generally, to actually give it some meaning. If you've got Matt in the game, then it'd just shoot him in the head anyway, so bang. <laughs> There's a human sacrifice every five minutes when Matt's around. <laughs> well, I think, I think another thing that would make it confusing for, for some players, and I'm, I'm sure there are scenarios out there that do this, is the idea of the sacrifice being willing. That if it is someone who is, you know, the worshipper of, of Yogg-Sothoth or something like that, and they are willingly giving their life to the sacrifice, then, all right, the investigators might be going in to stop something horrible being summoned. But in terms of actually preserving that person's life, is that necessarily a righteous thing to do? I think a reference here would be Midsummer. <laughs> For you folks who have seen it, you know what I'm talking about. That's some occult horror going on right there and some sacrifice. I find it difficult, actually, this thinking of human sacrifice, how to make it interesting beyond going into the really gruesome. There's too many instances. Oh, yeah, some person's on an altar. Yeah, there's a knife going to come down or they're going to get killed somehow. It, it's Ultimately, it's that same template. Hmm. Without maybe going into something, I say, a bit more gruesome, perhaps... Like killing a baby as soon as it comes out of the womb. But you're talking about something that's really gruesome and horrible. Yeah, exactly. That, that's the only real way I can... But that's kind of just... Ugh, that's kind of repellent. Yeah. If we just go back to the standard idea of a human sacrifice in games, often it doesn't really have any more impact than killing a goblin in D&D. Yeah, mm. that's, that's my point. It's the same, yeah, no, I agree, it's the I same agree. template. It's, it's, in fact, a boring thing I would try and avoid. Yeah. The key to sacrifice, I mean, not just you know, within a game, but the idea of it being a sacrifice, something you are giving, giving up. up that you don't mm. want to give up, is the fact that it is something important to you. A, a sacrifice doesn't have to be a living thing. You could demand... Uh, of a player character that for a right to work they have to say give up their treasured possession or they have to give up their relationship rather than you know to, to yeah. their important person rather than necessarily stabbing them on an altar or worse than that they have to give up parts of what make them human or we get this already in call of cthulhu with the idea of sacrificing points of permanent power but that's seen as being a very sort of mechanical thing mm -hmm. yeah. but if we add some color to that that, you know, perhaps when you're giving those bits up, in, in the style of Unknown Armies Mechanomancers or something like that, you're giving up memories of, of important things to you. You know, the way that your daughter felt when she was born in your arms and stuff like that. When you say about Unknown Armies, there was an image of one of the powers, I th think it's the Savage, but I can't remember exactly which one, where one of the things that they have to do is give up all possessions, destroy all social ties and literally walk out of the city naked and then they have completely separated themselves from anything materialistic, that they have given up everything. Hmm. That that strikes me as a form of sacrifice in a way. In Call of Cthulhu, you could, you know, if you were forcing a, a character to give up parts of themselves to gain something, you could even sort of say, right, you know, give up X number of skill points to represent the fact that you've forgotten the bits of your life that that taught you how to do this. Hmm. And then we come to another big appeal of occult horror. This featured pretty heavily in quite a lot of occult films, the old sex magic. magic. Oh, yes. yeah. More interesting than, than getting someone getting killed <laughs> on an altar any day. Yeah, and th this is something that actually, you know, does come out of occultism. There is, there is real sex I'm magic. I'm not sure how you put this in a game, though. <laughs> this is even worse than sacrifices. Is, yeah. It's one of these weird things. I, mean, I, I, I know we talked about this on the podcast before, where having a couple of people have consensual sex on an altar is going to creep more... Uh, players out than someone getting eviscerated on an altar. I think for for that reason, it's actually quite a potent thing to put in there. I, you know, I, I, as with you know any game that I, I'm involved with, I, I'd avoid the idea of you know sort of ritualistic rape or sexual assault of any kind. But sex magic traditionally is a very sort of consensual thing that either involves you know a couple of partners or you know in a lot of cases is based on masturbation. But you know the idea that there is power in sexual release. 
There's also that yin-yang aspect of sex and death being very connected. Yes. Um, I know in a cult scenario that I wrote um, some years ago that there's, um, two of the characters who were in a genuine relationship got together um, and had sex in the City of the Dead as a way to try and bring back one of the souls into the, fet- the fetus that would then develop inside the girl later. I mean, th- there are actually real-world analogues of that. So we've been a bit loose with throwing around the term black magic. In fiction, black magic is all the things we've talked about. But there is an idea of black magic in real occultism, the, the left-hand path. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that in occult practices, you've got the left-hand and the right-hand path. Uh, the right-hand path is sort of the intellectual, the pure version. It is self-denial. It's shedding your, your connections to your body and to the mundane world and you know becoming more spiritual. Uh, whereas the left-hand path is the more physical, carnal, bloody form. And I mean, we see this outside the Western tradition in Tantra. There's a particular tantric rite, which is almost exactly what you described. The idea is that both the left-hand path and the right-hand path are ultimately supposed to lead to enlightenment. The right-hand path through, you know, through self-denial and elevating yourself above the world. The left-hand path by abasing yourself and, and getting so down in it that nothing, you know, you also lose attachment, but through satiation. And there is a, a, a rite in Tantra which basically involves, you know, an act of sex magic, having sex on a pile of corpses. So sort of rid yourself of that degree of revulsion to you know, sort of break down that, that fear of death. Good. I suppose it makes a good cushion or mattress eventually. <laughs> this strikes me as, again, something you could you know, make good use of in Call of Cthulhu because... You know, it, there, sorry, there is, which bit? <laughs> sex, sorry, sex, sex magic in general because right. you know, there, there is that sort of animalistic side of it, yeah, particularly once you start getting into cults of Shivani Girath and the, the witchcraft roots of that and so on, then there's an awful lot of, you know, orgiastic rites you could put in there, sexual rites. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one to incorporate either appropriately or at all in games. So I think you've got to take a lot of care with that area. That, that is a definite handle with care element, but I think it can have its place. But like I say, it's, it's, it's really interesting that, you know, eviscerating someone is something that we'd all put in a scenario without a second thought. But a couple of people, you know, having consensual sex, that's creepy. I'm not sure it's creepy. Oh, or at least, it, yeah. It, it... If you start describing it, Scott, <laughs> it's kind of creepy. Well, especially if I make faces while doing so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could do your trousers up for a start, but <laughs> um, we don't sit around in the pub and describe sex scenes to each other i mean it depends who you hang out with yeah we, we, we want to <laughs> we <just don't. laughs> no no instead, instead we go home afterwards and write fanfic yeah we're british <laughs> damn it <laughs> there's a time and a place and it is at our keyboard and so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh god this whole horror is taking a turn for the worst <laughs> that's like, right, i didn't expect this worn out on my t- <laughs> Building upon that slightly, or at least going off at a slight tangent, is perhaps the whole idea of of love spells, or at least spells that give you control over another person. And yeah, I, I remember in my days of you know, practicing ritual magic, a neo pagan I knew sort of telling me that it wasn't something that had occurred to me before, but seemed really obvious in in retrospect. Which is, if you believe in the idea of a love potion or a love spell or whatever, then that is inherently a really horrible thing. You're destroying free will. You're yeah. literally you're dominating someone, like the dominate spell in in Cthulhu. Hmm. You you are being completely manipulative, and that is horrible. It's perhaps not always portrayed that way in fiction or in fairy tales and stuff like that yeah there's perhaps a certain aspect of these tales where it's sometimes seen as romantic yeah i think there's a romantic kind of wish fulfillment thing oh there's that person that i'd really like to have a relationship with but they don't reciprocate but if i just gave them this potion you know they'd reciprocate like they wanted to all the time but it's secretly but obviously they didn't but it's like magical real hypnol isn't it well it kind of is yeah it's basically that it's and I guess there's scope there for some well-intentioned NPC doing that stuff, but actually being, again, though, we kind of get into the kind of areas of sexual abuse. But I think as well that because of our roots in, in D&D, that we're used to spells like charm person or whatever that allow you to influence a character, you know, hmm. sort of impose your will on them or at least, you know, get them on your side. And if we look at that in Call of Cthulhu terms, I mean, we all right, we've got spells like Dominate and so on in there. 
which are perhaps a bit darker. But I think it's very easy sometimes, if those spells get into the hands of an investigator, for them to see them as being utilitarian. As Whereas I, I think it is fundamentally an absolutely fucking horrific thing. Wasn't that the one, uh, a variation on that spell, the one thing that took me from 96 sand down to about 13 when we played Walk on Ways? <laughs> you did quite use it like, quite a lot. Like, hey, cultist, shoot your friend. Pretty, pretty useful spell. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, if you were trying to, beyond the sand loss, trying to make that horrific for a player, not just their investigator, but a player in a game to try to drive home, you know, what a horrible thing it is they're doing. How, how might you do that? I think they would, they'd ignore the morality of it and just use it as a as very much a utilitarian thing. Is hey, this is another thing in my arsenal. I can pull out the bag and use it. I'm doing it for the greater good. So it's all justified. Because <laughs> we're the good guys after all, aren't we? We haven't got skulls on our caps. It's all good. If I were to run a game in which you know, someone was using Domination an awful lot, you know, the way that you did, I'd be inclined to perhaps sort of play with it slightly and have the NPCs perhaps go through with the actions that they're being told to do, but at the same time being aware of what's happened to them, locking eyes with the player character and crying and just sort of saying, don't make me do this as they're doing this horrible thing. We have gaining control over others, but we also have curses, which is almost like an extension mm. of gaining control over others, but, you know, for definite evil means to put a curse on someone. And that has a definite seed for scenarios, I think. You know, somebody's put a curse on someone by whatever means. That maybe that, that may be just through some occult rites, I guess. We see it in Supernatural, the TV series, quite a lot, where there's, you know, there's mm. one of those hex bags or whatever, you know, put under somebody's bed or curse being put on the person. Yeah, I think sort of the archetypal story that, you know, Supernatural borrowed from an awful lot there uh, is M.R. James's Casting the Runes, mm. where you, you had this this character who was actually based on Alistair Crowley Carswell, this you know, sort of ne'er-do-well author of books about alchemy, who takes a front to uh, a bad review that a critic gives him. And, you know, he, he's got a bit of form with this. He, he sort of writes these strange runes on a bit of paper and slips it into... Um, it's a library book, yeah. I think. Yes, gets, yeah. yeah, that's right. The whole thing just sort of becomes this, you know, first start realising what the hell is going on as the creepy events start building up. And then, you know, how do we get this back into Carswell's possession? What, what might be, you know, a single spell in Call of Cthulhu turning into, you know, a whole scenario? I'm fairly positive there is actually a Cthulhu retelling of that story. There, though, um, as in a scenario that's been published that does exactly the same thing as casting the runes. Well, th- I mean, there was a Brian Lumley story which uh, ripped it off egregiously called uh, The Calling of the Black. Mm. The thing I'd like to play around with them is almost subverting expectation that it's to say, oh yeah, curse means that doom shall come to you! With the evil pointed finger at the investigator. But what happens if you had multiple curses which were all set up as part of some grand occultist master plan where it was actually supposed to pull off another thing entirely that they didn't see what was coming until you combine it with the effects of every other spell, uh, every Mm. other curse that's gone off? That almost reminds me a little bit of uh, Alan Moore's comic From Hell. Uh, where you know it's the Jack the Ripper murders that are being set up as part of a much larger occult ritual to to birth the twentieth century. Mm. But I mean, curses don't necessarily, like I say, have to be death curses. I mean, the whole idea of hexes and so on comes out of witchcraft, and a lot of them were fairly petty things. You know, making people sick, making their uh, their cows give bad milk, and stuff mm. like that. Alternatively, if you do kill them and you want to carry on making their lives a misery, you can use necromancy. Yeah, I mean, necromancy, that's a common theme in occult horror as well, right? Bringing back the dead, probably often from good intentions. Mm. Either bringing back a loved one, bringing back a child or a spouse, or perhaps, you know, bringing back the master. Yes. And that's a a somewhat more macabre, but still perhaps one could contrive it as well-intentioned. It is a bit removed from the original, at least from what I remember has been one of the original uses or intentions of necromancy being supposedly to conjure up the spirits of the dead to learn the future because Mm. they existed outside of time. Yes. That it was very much a divinatory power rather than... Yeah, but that divinatory power doesn't work so good on the big screen. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the point <laughs> we of this... We want to see walking corpses, man. Oh. That, that's right. I mean, the point of this is that we are talking about occult horror, not occultism. Mm. So when we see a necromancy in in occult horror, it can be you know, raising up unquiet spirits, ghosts. It can almost be a form of putting a curse on someone that you raise up a, a, a vengeful spirit to go and haunt them or do horrible things. But yeah, I mean, knowledge, knowledge is a great one. Mm-hmm. As with so many things here, I mean, these in occult horror, things that antagonists do. But in Call of Cthulhu, you know, that line gets blurred an awful lot. And, you know, this strikes me as being the kind of thing investigators would do, given half a chance. Oh, yeah. Trying trying to get that knowledge. Indeed, in the core book, there's raise zombie spell or create zombie (laughs) spell. (laughs) And this was, well, this was when Mike and I were going through the Seventh Head Rules. This was like the one we we identified as an exemplar of a, a... variant spell because there were like four or five versions of a spell that did essentially the same kind of thing of creating a a zombie um you know bringing back in one example just bringing back kind of a lifeless corpse in another one kind of bringing back a person to a a greater degree um so we use this to kind of illustrate the fact that the call of cthulhu spell could be twisted by the keeper and, and you know changed its form if you want to do that so, yeah, I think the scope for bringing back dead people as a seed for scenarios is, is a great one because it's a very common thing to wish to do and a common trope in mm. stories, I think. Yeah, and when it goes wrong, it goes wrong horribly. I'm, yeah. You know, from uh, you know, the, the Monkey's Paw is the classic example there. Or, you know, that, that episode of Buffy, the one where Dawn tries to raise the spirit of her mother and it all goes horribly. Conversations with dead people, yeah. Well, the one thing I did that does strike me as being a good, useful investigator tool, who needs interrogation or any of those interpersonal skills? We can just shoot the cultists in the face, raise their ghosts and then control them without any problem. <laughs> oh, any that's, that's, a, yeah. that's yeah, the kind of interrogation right. I would do. Yeah, <laughs> And this is why all your characters end up on no sand. <laughs> so we've had the example of Scott's percussive investigation where he punches them until the clues fall out. And now we have Matt goes a step further, yeah. kills them and then punches them until the sp- the information falls out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> punches them right in the spirit. <laughs> like, yeah, there, there is a definite character archetype, isn't there? The, the hard-boiled necromancer. <laughs> oh, I was so doing that as a pulp adventure. <laughs> <laughs> there are a number of tropes here which sort of touch upon actual religious practices. So, you know, you, you do have uh, religions like uh, Voodoo or, or mm. Santeria or, or even Wicca where, uh, and other neo-pagan religions where the, these acts of magic are actually perhaps part of their eyes. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, sacrificing virgins under the full moon and summoning up demons or, you know, or raising the dead or stuff like that. But, you know, th- these perhaps touch upon, you know, other people's actual religious beliefs that there is, you know, sometimes perhaps a bit of scope for sensitivity if, yeah, I mean, yeah. some of them bring out like, the mummified bodies of the dead every year or every so many years oh, yeah, to, they, oh, to celebrate yeah. with they, they, and they, so on. There's an annual festival in Hong Kong where people do that. So, but, yeah. yeah, I think you do want to be culturally sensitive. You don't want to mock those beliefs. If I'm going to take inspiration from that, I wouldn't want to set it in that culture and I wouldn't want to rip that off directly. But, yeah, I still think it's, you know, that whole idea of necromancy and talking to the dead, bringing the dead back to life is a rich mm. one. Yeah. Definitely. It is that time, once again, when we would like to say thank you. We would like to thank those of you who listen to the podcast, those of you who back us via Patreon, and we have a whole slew of new backers to thank. Yeah, starting at the $1 level, we have a big thanks going out to Eric Van Newkirk. Oh, thank you very much, Eric. Indeed, thank you, Eric. And thank you to Magnus Eriksson. Indeed, thank you very much, Magnus. Thank you, Magnus. And also thanks go out to Robert McLean. So, thank you very much, Robert. Thanks, Robert. Thank you, Robert. And thanks to Brion Halling. Yes, we hope we got that right, so thank you very much, Brion. Indeed, thank you, Brion. And thank you very much to Joshua Barkley. Indeed, thank you very much, Joshua. Thanks, Joshua. And also thanks go out to Darren Maroney. So, thank you very much, Darren. Thank you, Darren. Yes, thank you very much, Darren. And then, raising up to the $3 level, we say thanks and cheers to Jeff Fraustet. Thank you very much and cheers, Jeff. Hey, cheers, Jeff.
And thank you and cheers to Ronnie Anderson. Hey, cheers, Ronnie. Cheers, Ronnie. And also thanks and cheers go out to Nicholas W. Grop. I hope I've got your surname right there, uh, Nicholas. But anyway, cheers. Cheers, Nicholas. And cheers and thank you, Nicholas. And now, now you know what's going to happen now. What happens now? We are raising terrible forces here. We are performing the unholiest, the most blasphemous of rides. It's all about the rising with him today, is it? <laughs> is that why you've drawn the pentagram? No, no, I mean, that's, that's just normal. Oh. And never travel without one. I hope that washes out of my carpet. <laughs> not, not with what it's inked in with, no. <laughs> Shows up under UV light. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, starting off at the $5 level, we are going to sing our praises to Chris Craigie. Yes, thank you, Chris, and all praise. Oh, boy, I hope you like this, Craig. <laughs> no! sacrifice we abase ourselves before our most awesome master chris craigie we offer you thanks we offer you blood we offer you song and we offer our most terrible and awesome thanks to will t harina oh brace yourself will hope you like it thank you very much will enjoy On social media, specifically over on Apple Podcasts, we've had a lovely review from Orbital Axolotl down in Australia. A phenomenal podcast. Probably my favourite podcast, The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, covers horror fiction films and particularly gaming. All three of the hosts are professional role-playing game writers, so they absolutely know what they're talking about, and they're all very likeable and interact with fans online. I love the fact that all three of us kind of looked at each other when mentioned the bit about all know what they're talking about. <laughs> Hey, I, you, I, I, you guys I, don't know what you're talking about. What's, what's the name? <laughs> I, I resemble that remark. I mean. uh, the episodes cover many different topics, and I always find another episode in the sizable backlog to excitedly sink my teeth into. The show provides incredible insights into running games and is often quite funny. Most of all, I love the way that they handle Lovecraft. They're willing to acknowledge his awful nature, but also appreciate the good parts of his work and praise them suitably. Some of the earlier episodes have less than stellar audio quality, but is very good in more recent ones, uh, with good editing. Can't praise them enough. Well, well, thank you very much, Orbital. Or, Orbital likes a lot of law. OA. Oh, yeah, yes. Anyway. OA, yes. So, so yes, thank you very much. We, we really appreciate that. As We appreciate every review that is left for us. And if you feel moved to write one of your own, we would absolutely love that. And moving on, we've had some great feedback about our recent episode about the film Martyrs. Dr. Colossus One on Reddit said, I was thinking about the history of depictions of martyrs in media and the sometimes astonishing levels of gore and visceral horror that are part of these depictions in religious context. The aim of such things in their original purpose, I suppose, is to shock and disturb the viewer into a state where they are ready to align themselves with the higher truths. As you turn to your prayers, witness what this person went through as a means of communing with God. As depictions of martyrdoms begin to be removed from their religious context into more purely art pieces, they risk falling into a kind of abhorrent torture porn. I, th th this is part of a much longer comment which I edited down for, for our discussion today. But I'm endlessly fascinated by the depictions of martyrdom. I think I mentioned on the episode that I picked up a copy many years ago of a book called uh, Tortures and Torments of the Christian Saints that had woodcuts in it depicting some of these horrible methods in which the saints were, mm. were martyred. 
I did wonder when reading that what the original drive for people reading this book was. I mean, yes, all right, there is, yeah, what what Dr. Colossus mentions on there, that sense of awe as to what a person was willing to give up in their pursuit of righteousness. But I think even in those early religious days, there was probably certainly that 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 prurient interest as well, that this was exciting, this was bloody. Yeah, I think maybe I'm cynical, but... I think a lot of those old religious paintings featuring paintings of naked children and naked women and so on, Hmm. they were hung on rich men's walls. I don't think you have to look too far for reasons. Well, I think sort of the classic version of that is uh, St. Sebastian. Hmm. So these depictions of this very young, physically attractive uh, saint being struck through with arrows... Uh, it's almost always depicted in this this erotic way. And I think it was Derek Jarman uh, in, in his film sort of explored um, that, that erotic side of him, the, the, the homoerotic depictions of, of St. Sebastian. I don't think I've ever seen a depiction of him that wasn't in some way erotic. Transhuman on Discord said, Personally, I see the message Mademoiselle received as being that there is no afterlife. Therefore, that the line of keep doubting makes sense, or at least something that uh, proves to Mademoiselle that she was categorically and unquestionably wrong and evil by hurting the girls. Um, Tor Nielsen took that idea one stage further, and he said, I'm wondering if Anna is telling Mademoiselle that the universe is moral and the cult has consigned itself to atonement or eternal torment. Well, I hadn't thought of that final one. Yeah, but then again, why should would she kill herself only to put herself in the hands of that torment immediately? Well, because it's inevitable. And, yeah, I, I think I made the point during the episode that the anticipation of it would be intolerable. Yeah, well, if you live your life if you know all that's coming? That's yeah, right. and I guess she's given her life to trying to find out about the afterlife, so she's kind of obsessed with that. Yeah. And finally, Linus Larson over on our Discord server said... There is an allegorical level as well, perhaps one of class or colonialism. Fellow humans are reduced to a resource or commodity to exploit. As the hosts touched upon, the resources and influence required to build such an enterprise is limited to the highest elite, and they don't even have to witness the process. That is a very strong point. It's something that I keep getting drawn back to in in horror fiction and the stuff I work on as well, which is that sort of predatory aspect of humanity that you know we are so willing to see each other as as tools or objects to be used at the risk of going all marxist i think our entire fucking society is based on that i'm just struggling to see how the allegory extends into the treatment of anna when it comes to to the final revelations and so on, or are we not? Extending it's it's it not the far? final revelations. It's the fact that this this cult has seen these young women as means to an end; mm, that they are certainly. a resource to be used, and that this is an inherently very human thing. That you know, it's it's something you know we all participate in every time we buy something from a sweatshop. Mm. Now let's wrap up with a couple of final thoughts about occult horror. Well, first of all, do you think Call of Cthulhu is inherently an occult horror game? No, because I think occult horror is in the genre that we see that we've discussed that's represented in Hammer Horror and things like that, is the dark side against the light of Christianity or too often. And we mm. don't have that in Call of Cthulhu. And a lot of those occult trappings in Call of Cthulhu, I'm like, I'm not really sure how to fit these in, you know, with the pentagrams and the sacrifices of virgins and the um, demons and angels. All those things that you can, you can definitely twist them around and fit them into your game, but they're not the obvious fit to me. They don't flow easily into that. I wouldn't say yes or no directly, but I would say that Call of Cthulhu is a game of cosmic horror with occult horror trappings. Mm. That it takes certain elements of it, like your good old traditional robe-wearing cultists taking someone out to an Mm. altar to ready to sacrifice them to one of their gods. It doesn't happen to be a goat of Mendes. It might be a other type of black goat of the woods. 
but there's elements of some of the set dressing you can see as being taken from one and transposed into the other, but within a different, wider context. And that's that's how we discussed it with Lovecraft, isn't it? We said he <laughs> used some of the occult trappings in his stories, but his stories weren't the traditional occult fodder. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I I agree wholeheartedly. I think Call of Cthulhu is a game that is is run through with occult horror trappings, with with tropes, but is not uh, an occult horror game. And this is something that ties in very heavily with that discussion we had with Sandy Peterson some time back, where he was talking about how the appeal of Lovecraft to him was that you know he's a member of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter Day Saints, and as a result, sort of a rejects depictions of, of the occult and doesn't want to have that in his games. And we were interested in when we talked to him about how he squared that with producing a game like Call of Cthulhu. And to him, it was because all of this stuff is science fiction. These are aliens. These are alien uh, entities from beyond space and time who people might see as gods, might see as demons and so on, but they're not. They're, they're completely outside that whole realm of black magic of Satanism. Mm. I think I I do largely agree, but at the same time, I think the definition is a pretty artificial one sometimes in the way that, you know, people actually play Call of Cthulhu. I think sometimes there might be a little more Dennis Wheatley in in Call of Cthulhu than people think. There's certainly an argument to be made that uh, if you're doing a Wheatley Cthulhu game, that it would be very much a pulp Cthulhu game. Again, using the example from Devil Rides Out, one thing that doesn't try make it into the film is that once uh, they finish in the Magic Circle, there's a, a whole cross-continental chase. They go to Paris, from there they go across the whole continent, they end up in Greece, there's a whole run through the countryside up to this deserted monastery. Because one thing the, the whole film adaptation misses out is the whole motivation of what MacArthur is after. Uh, he's after the Talisman of Set, otherwise known as the Penis of Osiris. He wants this be, this magical artifact, this talisman, to bring about destruction and potentially, and, and the way that Wheatley puts it, start off another war. Um, what would become World War Two and the end of the world, and that's all omitted from the film. So, so basically, the whole thing is just yeah, you know, a massive pursuit of Godcock. Yeah, I was because I hadn't seen the film before when I went to watch it after the you book. Were so I was thinking, I was thinking, Wait, where's the dead God's cock? Where, where did it go? Is it basically the cock of Vecna? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it glows in the dark. <laughs> wow. <laughs> glows. Does, does yours you, not you do mean, that? Oh, I was about to say, yeah. yeah. But yeah, there, there's none of that in the film whatsoever. But yeah, the, reading the book, that the end section would be a, a pretty good Pulp Cthulhu adventure, I think. <laughs> cool. <laughs> okay, well, uh, on that bombshell, we'll leave it there until next time. So it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.